Welcome back everyone. I am thrilled to have Dr. Hamsu here to talk to us today about reactor fleet sustainability. Um, a little bit about Rosara is that she has her Bachelor's of Engineering in Engineering Physics from Ibero University, Mexico. Um, she has her PhD in Material Sciences from McMaster University, and she was a visiting fellow with Max Planck Group, Technical University of Dresden, Germany. So lots of experience there and wide variety, but you know, that really goes along with those 25 years that she spent now in science and tech. She's done everything um, from fuel development and working as a section head in fuel assemblies to the manager of the fuel de development branch into advanced fuels and fuel cycles as a center of excellence lead. And now she is the head of directorate for the Reactor Fleet Sustainability Directorate. I've worked extensively with Rosara and I'm excited to have her today to talk about what she does now and um, why it matters for the future of nuclear. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Larkin. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I guess the first question is, what is reactor fleet sustainability? Yes, so uh, we've had nuclear reactors for many years. In Canada, we've had these uh, beautiful machines producing power for 30 years. Uh, and uh, these, these absolutely elegant machines, uh, they need to perform safely, they need to perform uh, well, and they need to be economic. And uh, sustaining that fleet of reactors, we have, uh, uh, we have 19 operating reactors right now, and then sustaining them so that they keep on producing reliable energy for all of us, that's what reactor fleet sustainability is all about. Okay, so the fleet is having all of them of the same type? Or, for example, in places that they have multiple types of reactors, would the fleet be all those types together? Yes, it's all of the types together, anything that is producing um, energy now. So you don't even need to be a reactor for producing electricity. It could be a fleet of reactors that produce, uh, that are used for propulsion, for example. Okay. This is still a fleet of reactors that produce useful energy. Okay, so in Canada, that just happens to be can-do, and so I know that because CNL and AACL historically, we were the creators of the can-do reactor, does that mean that we, your director kind of focuses on can-do, or do we do more than that? We do more than that, but definitely our focus is, um, the main focus is definitely the can-do fleet. They are the, the Canadian reactors. They are the only ones that are producing electricity in Canada. Uh, so the focus, it's a very natural focus. But uh, reactor fleet sustainability also helps uh, with other types of, of reactors. Uh, the light water reactors, well, the can-do reactors are heavy water reactors. Right. And we like to distinguish the reactors between heavy water and light water reactors. It's a long story behind that, but uh, uh, we also uh, provide services for light water reactors. So reactor fleet sustainability is all about putting science and technology together to provide solutions that are geared to higher performance, better safety, more economics for any fleet of reactors. Okay, that's great. I, I think that that's a great context for the discussion we're going to have today, especially as you know, nuclear is becoming that hot topic. I think in the last month I've been actually asked 
several times how many reactors are there worldwide that are not operating or that could be started up again. Um, and so in terms of reactor fleet sustainability, we talk a lot about life extension. Um, and I want to talk to you about that because life extension, as we've, we've talked about before, means that something's dead and we're extending its life, which I don't think is quite what we're doing. So do you want to tell me what life extension means and what it, it could mean for the reactor fleet? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. So uh, at the very beginning, when the, when the fleet started, uh, somebody had to put sort of an expiry date on, on, on the, those reactors. And, and so then after that happened, then everything that would, that would help that reactor keep on working was, was termed life extension activities. Mm -hmm. But it's really at an administrative number, really. So uh, because that can be a very confusing term, and, uh, and then you can imagine that something is sort of dying and then you're extending its life, the, the new term used by the industry is long-term operations. Right. So when we're going past the 30 years, uh, then we're going into long-term operations. And for example, a mid, uh, something considered a midlife refurbishment uh, would, be at, uh, would be part of those long-term operations. So the reactors get major components for uh, change uh, during those major refurbishments, and basically that will allow them to operate another 30 years or so. Uh, every reactor is monitored very carefully, mm -hmm. so it's not, uh, it, it, it's not that we have an exact date of when this is going to expire, right? Like your, your yogurt will expire in two weeks, but you actually don't know. It's, it will be two weeks or more. <laughs> right. Right? Uh, right. So it's, it's not an exact date. And so I, you mentioned that we do it, like monitoring and uh, inspections. So those inspections that get done on reactors, that's part of the long-term operations as well. And, and so do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the work that your director does to help with this long-term operations? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, so the reactor does... Uh, we do a whole bunch of series of things, but any material when it's in service, uh, it will change because it's exposed to higher temperatures, because there's radiation, mm -hmm. and every component is made of, of materials. Any, any system is made of components. So systems of reactors need to be taken care of mm -hmm. by figuring out what is their state, how they are changing, predicting how they will change, and uh, replacing them or stopping their degradation or deciding that that's it and you need to change it, right? Uh, so the reactor fleet sustainability um, addresses all those, all those segments. So we have an area, for example, where we look at uh, how a component that is very important for the conduits uh, is changing, and that is the pressure tubes. Now, why are the pressure tubes so important? They are the a pressure boundary. They're basically keeping high pressure water uh, that is in contact with fuel uh, encased and, uh, and separate from the rest. A reactor goes down periodically to, to perform inspections on these major components. 
and one of the typical inspections is the inspection of the pressure tubes. Mm -hmm. So uh, our team are the are part of are part of these subject matter experts that go to different canoes around the world and perform these inspections. They are not the only ones. There's actually a very big team performing these inspections, and uh, what that does is it checks how each pressure tube or the pressure tubes that they're inspecting how they are doing, mm -hmm. and and then there are decisions on how uh, how these re the reactors will operate moving forward. It could be that they they need to change a pressure tube. It could be that everything is well and they keep on going. Uh, it, it is very important information tool on how things are changing. So it's not that uh, you inspect and you take a decision right away. You inspect, you gather that information, and, and with that information, you might decide on a trend or you might decide on the future or what, what so could happen. Last year, I think it was an, as a result of an inspection, um, there was um, higher hydrogen found in some tubes at Bruce Power. Um, would that be something that we'd be engaged with or that we would that or is that part of like information that gets gathered to then make decisions about the tubes? Because I know Bruce Power issued releases that said, you know, it's still within the safety bounds, we've investigated this, so you know that's covered, but is that something that we'd be engaged with? So CNL has been in engaged on um, making those measurements. Uh, but the decisions uh, rely with the operators. Right. right. The operators and the regulator are, are the ones that take those decisions. We provide, again, the science and technology back, background for this. We provide the measurements. Uh, some of our capabilities are to be able to handle radioactive materials mm -hmm. like this ones and take measurements, different measurements. Some are hydrogen measurements like these ones. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I, think it's, uh, I think it's really important then as that context that CNL is really... Um, that lab for the utilities? Yes, they, they do have some hot labs cells? and okay. some access to other hot cells. We're not the only hot cells in Canada, but uh, we, are, we are certainly um, we're certainly the institution or the organization with the largest hot cells in Canada and uh, probably the most versatile. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, we had earlier conversations with Ali and uh, Keys about at small modular reactors. Based on our conversation, fleet is really those big reactors that are currently operating because we haven't really moved into small. Um, so how 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 do these two plan to interface moving forward? How how will your directorate support small fleets, maybe even, and how they can combine and integrate to be the reactor fleet that is operating. Everything we've learned from the operating these reactors can be uh, can be used for the new small reactor fleet. Uh, the small reactor fleet will be different in uh, in many ways. For example, uh, when you bring the a new reactor, uh, we will have to know how we're going to take care of the waste we will have to know how to monitor its health. And we will have to have a lot uh, more um, granularity on how the life of a reactor is going to go than when these reactors started. 
So we've, we are learning with the fleet how to monitor the health of components. So for example, we have a group that uh, dedicates uh, itself to uh, working with seals and uh, how a seal is working, you can tell by the vibrations. Uh, so it, vibration is something fairly routine that can get monitored in a component and it's a window to the health of that component. Uh, once you acquire that data, it's usually a lot of data, you use new technologies and we are implementing machine learning uh, to, to gather this data and make sense of it and apply it to, uh, to the best of our abilities to predict how a component is doing and when it will need to be changed. All this can be used in advanced reactors. All these predictive capabilities that we are developing now and you need to develop it with things that are that exist because mm -hmm. you cannot predict the life of a paper reactor because the components are not there yet. But you can predict the the life of a, of a component that has existed, that you've gone, it has run its life, so you have data throughout its life, and then you have another component. So you have many series of similar components where you have data that you can use to predict what's going to happen to the next one. That, that information is key to monitoring the health, not only of these current reactors, but the future reactors. Uh, so it, it is fascinating. It's like learning from the old and applying it to the new. And uh, the, the new, um, new technologies and new modeling capabilities are all being applied to the current fleet and all that learning will apply to the next fleet. So I want to pull back to something you had said earlier and mentioned about economics and that the reactor fleet sustainability, part of that is you know, obviously ongoing safe operation, um, on making sure that we're still getting reliable energy from these reactors, but also that it's done economically. Um, a lot of the big projects that I can think of that are happening in, in Ontario are uh, the fuel channel refurbishment projects. So at Darlington and at Bruce, there's big refurbishment. How does that factor into that economic, sustainable reactor fleet operation? Yeah, so you're always looking at the cost of operating a reactor. Uh, it just translates... Uh, almost uh, directly to the price we pay for electricity in <laughs> Ontario, right? 50% uh, of the electricity in Ontario, or about that, is produced by nuclear reactors. Uh, so you always, if the utilities operate more economically, then our electricity it can, be, uh, can be produced at a lower price, right? It, it, it's just straight... Uh, economics there. Now, what would CNL do, for example, to look up that after that, those economics? And one, uh, one good example I was thinking about, because you mentioned refurbishment, is when you refurbish, um, you have to remove those pressure tubes. You have to remove another tube that is called a calandria tube. So now in the, in the early, well, on, the usual process is you remove the calandria tube and then you remove, sorry, you remove the pressure tube and then the calandria tube. So there are two tubes to be removed. 
uh, CNL develop a technology where you can remove the two tubes at the same time. So by removing them at the, at the same time, that process basically got halved in terms of time. And uh, it, so that means that that time saved is reactor operating time. Uh, and if those reactors are producing electricity, then it's more economically than if they're down, right? Mm -hmm. And you are doing something else with them, right? So everything we do is, is to get the reactors to, to produce to their maximum rating as, as much as possible and to keep them running uh, as, as, for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. You were talking a bit about uh, components, and I can't help but bring NRU, our old research reactor, into this, um, and how understanding the effects of radiation and long-term operations on materials um, can benefit the, the fleet. So is, there, is research getting done in your directorate or with people that you know of that are taking components of these old reactors that were operating for NRU was close to 60 years or over 60 years, um, and seeing how those components can be then translated to how we can sustain our fleet. So you using uh, using components that got extracted from an NRU reactor is basically a window to the future of what some of the components in our current fleet will look like. So it's incredibly exciting to see those, and it helps you to predict how will they be affected and how we could prevent that. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what we do is how to prevent damage or how to reverse some things that have happened. Um, and going back to the, <clears throat> to the pressure boundary, and through all those, all that, move, that water is moving uh, in a very fast-paced, in a very large system. And we have really two systems of water in the Kandus, one which is producing steam, and the other one that is just passing the heat towards the steam generators. It only passes the steam, I'm sorry, the heat. The steam is producing a different system. Mm -hmm. uh, so taking care of those complex systems is incredibly important. So looking at the chemistry of the water, how that changes with radiation, and then you have the components that got irradiated in NRU that that tell you what this irradiation is going to do to those components. You put all that together, you have a very powerful mixture of information to take care of this uh, of these reactors and keep them working. Then the next thing that comes to mind is really what components are those limiting factors in terms of life operations and long-term operation? Yes, for uh, for the can-dos, they're. There are some components that one cannot change. Mm -hmm. One is the calandria. So the, the pressure tubes uh, are inside a calandria. The calandria contains water. And if you were to compare it to a light water reactor, it would be the volume of water that, uh, that slows down neutrons and it's containing this big, huge component. It's a, it's a cylindrical component. The pressure tubes go through it, and the calandria is a component that cannot be changed. So the, the life of the calandria is very related to the life of a, of a can-do reactor. And how do we measure damage to a calandria then? 
Well, you basically have to go see it. Uh, you can you can take uh, you can take uh, small samples, and uh, yeah, that that's how you see. Uh, they there's there are places when I see you have to go see it. Doesn't mean you actually have to necessarily go with your eyes and and see it, right? Uh, you can have uh, you can have some probes, for example, that would look for corrosion. Uh, you could uh, have something that looks for cracks, and you can visually see it too. If the reactor is being retuved, you could actually visually check the calandria. Uh, the other major component is the containment building. It's a big concrete structure that, uh, if it ends up with, you know, if its life ends, that means also the the reactor life would end. Because it's a safety system. Yes, it's a safety system, and uh, and you can look at it too, and <laughs> and again, they, they are tests that you can that you can do. You can go look at the concrete. You can look for fractures. Uh, the French have a containment, a, a pretend mini containment building, where they do all kinds of tests. They overpressurize it, and they they see how uh, it changes size, for example, and. Uh, and, and and then that's that's related with the with the health, what micro cracks are there or they are not. Uh, so yeah, those components, um, the components that you cannot change, are really the ones that determine the life of a, of a reactor. And you can you can think about a, a car, right? When does a, the end of your of your car is? Uh, maybe at some point you could have the calandra in perfect shape, but there so many things that are all that is not worth uh, keeping that reactor uh, alive anymore, right? Because right. the cost of changing it would be so much more than bringing a new reactor. Right, and that's, I guess, the, 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 that economic decision that, uh, that needs to always be made about the life extension uh, or long-term operations, sorry, of the reactors. And that's probably, you know, that, that over the past year, I guess, in Ontario, um, Pickering was set to start to decommission or shut down in uh, 2024, and now in Ontario they've they've kind of put a, a delay on that for a year to do a better assessment or reassessment of how Pickering could possibly continue operations or not. And so I guess those are those are those factors that have to be uh, considered because Pickering is I guess the oldest reactors that are in Ontario, so um, they need to think about that economically. That's right. At some point, even if you could continue the operating the reactor, it won't be economically anymore, mm -hmm. right? So then you have to take a decision. Of course, now with climate change, it's not just about money. It's mm -hmm. also it's an exist existential threat. And if uh, we don't have another type of energy that is does not produce in greenhouse gases to substitute those reactors, then we have to. We have to put that into the equation. It's not just about money, right? Right. Yeah, yeah about the climate change and greenhouse gas reductions. And I know, I know that that also then offer, opens a lot of opportunities for funding and research and science about even advanced materials. So you know, when you're talking about inspections of the calandria, uh, I know that scientists have been looking at integrating advanced materials into calandria vessels or pressure vessels so that they can. Um, real-time monitor these components. Is that something that we're doing? Is that science of the future too far? Like, where are we in terms of um, 
you know, 3D printing components or contributing to advanced materials. So 3D printing of components, I mean, you can buy a printer and 3D print. They, they, we, are, we use a lot of 3D printing of components to make a specialized tools. Mm. Now from there, to put it in a reactor, in a, in a critical component, it's a long way out. But France has done, uh, I believe they are right now doing some experiments where they have fuel, uh, maybe it's part of the frame of their fuel, that has been 3D printed and it's been irradiated. And, uh, and you start seeing how it's reacting to, to the environment of, of the reactor. And uh, we certainly have efforts with, uh, with 3D printing. Uh, CNL has 3D printed uranium oxide. The reason that uh, uranium oxide in, uh, in the nuclear reactors that we have, it's, uh, it's in the shape of cylinders, is because it's an easy shape to make. Uh, when you talk to somebody who's looking after thermohydraulics, they would like to have some complex shapes so that you can really um, transfer the heat from the fuel to the carrier, which is the water, in a very efficient manner. So if you could have like a star shape uh, fuel, you could, you could maybe improve the performance. There are a lot of uh, compromises, right? You have to look at the physics and, uh, and the neutrons and a whole bunch of things. But, but you could do other very interesting designs if they didn't have to be cylinders that are easy to make. So if it was easy to make little star-shaped extrusions, maybe that would work very well. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> but, uh, but it opens a whole world of possibilities for design that was not available before. And uh, the, uh, the part of the advanced materials is, is going to be very important in advanced reactors. Yeah. They can do work incredibly well with the, with the materials that are, they are using. And then there will need to be a very uh, extraordinary drive in uh, economics or safety or performance to change those to, uh, to a different uh, advanced material. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> the the, the can-do reactor, uh, you know, it's it's known for so many things, but the big one being that it can use natural uranium, which is really important, and the components are fairly fairly straightforward. You know, like the materials are pretty straightforward. You can access them; they're not something that's hard to get. Well, I wanna I wanna end on this just because I'm curious: is what do you think the future of nuclear looks like? Well, I think the future of nuclear is going to is going to have uh, fusion reactors in it. Yes. And uh, but the the future of fission reactors, I believe there's more social acceptance for them. I think there's more knowledge on what to do with the waste and how to control it, keep it, store it, reuse it, in mm -hmm. uh, and I believe there's a very strong need to have smaller reactors for very specific needs. Mm -hmm. And now we have, we are developing the technologies to deploy them. Uh, so I think the, the future of nuclear is bright. Uh, and it's, it's not only the power that you get out of them, 
you can get uh, nuclear medicine, right? You can get uh, <clears throat> you can get a lot of information on industrial processes by using nuclear products, uh, and, uh, and so there's a lot of benefits other than the power that uh, that you get out of nuclear reactors. Well, thank you so much. I think that that inspiration of future nuclear and then also how our current fleet is really going to continue to sustain us and, and really move us through in a positive direct, direction towards addressing climate change is a really great way to end today's episode. So um, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it and um, hope everyone enjoys this episode as much as I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Rosara. Thanks, Larkin. Okay.